Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight in the Speakeasy is at the helm of an audiobook production company, Spoken Realms, who has himself been narrating audiobooks for quite some time. Stephen J. Cohen, thanks for joining me in the Speakeasy tonight. Thank you so much, Rich. I'm glad you could make it, and I'm glad you could uh, you could share a drink with me. What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking uh, a local microbrew. I'm drinking Dan Shea's Best Bitter. It is incredibly difficult to find a bitter in this part of the country, which is kind of odd. Huh. I would think. Well, that's great. I love drinking local. I always do that whenever yeah. possible. I'm I am not doing that today, but uh but I do love drinking local whenever possible. I am joining you with a Mexican martini tonight, the usual um, uh gin and vermouth with jalapeno stuffed olives. Nice. I, I will do my best to uh remember to mute my microphone when I'm gonna go Yo! because it's too spicy. Got it. All right. Cheers, Steven. <laughs> Cheers. So uh so where are you from? Uh, Brooklyn, born and raised. Brooklyn and Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn's and, in the house. And <laughs> and how long were you there? Oh my gosh! So I moved out of Brooklyn in like '96, nine, like sometime around '96 or so. I moved up to the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. So uh-huh. I'd lived all over New York City, primarily in Brooklyn. Realize Brooklyn is the only one of the five boroughs that will specify. You are not a New Yorker. You're a Brooklynite. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it's a thing because um, Brooklyn used to be its own city until 1898. Uh. Uh, we, we refer to that as the great mistake of 98 when Brooklyn <laughs> became part of New York City. That's great. I was unaware of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's part of that whole thing. So you were there for quite a while. So were you still, <laughs> did, did you go to high school in Brooklyn? Yeah, a Midwood High School, Brooklyn College, NYU. Wow. So you were there the whole time and then you moved up to Massachusetts after that. Yes. All right. And, uh, and do you miss it? I mean, I know that people have pretty varied opinions about New York, uh, both people right. who currently live there and people who don't live there. So, um, if you were there for that long growing up and now you're not there, how do you feel about New York? Well, um, so up until recently, um, my, I had family in New York. So when I, I would go in to then spend the day and whether I was going in for an audition or something like APAC or, or whatever, um, I would, you know, do the dutiful son thing and go visit my mother. Um, my mother, like all good New York Jews moved down to Florida. So I no <laughs> longer have that nice, convenient you know, that nice, convenient place to, to, to stay and say, hello, ma in, uh, in Brooklyn Heights. Cause now, now she's down in Boca. Now you so. just have to go visit Florida. Exactly. It's not quite the same thing. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's quite different. No, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, did you say NYU? Yes. What'd you yeah, do there? NYU. So NYU was grad school. I did, um, theater undergrad at Brooklyn college and I was, um, so a lot of people who were working in theater, you know, would have sort of the day job where they were waiting tables, tending bar, driving a cab. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I was, when I wasn't auditioning, I was running lighting and sound. So I, um, 
you know, so my day jobs were also in theater from early on. Um, Can't have a show without the tech. I know, you know, without the lighting designer, you'd be acting in the dark. Yep. You know, there was that whole thing. Uh, I slowly worked my way uptown and I was, um, I wound up doing some um, sound and lighting up at Symphony Space connected to things like selected shorts. Hmm. Um, So for me, the audio work goes a long way back, although originally what I was doing was doing small changes before things would go out on the network wire, you know, live edits and compression as things were, you know, being done and then being broadcast out or things being recorded for later broadcast out of out of symphony space like not exactly real time but almost yeah exactly well some things were done that way Mm -hmm. um you know so selected shorts usually wasn't but there were special events and different things that would be done with a with a time delay so you have like essentially a 12 second delay you know, in, so you can catch things that you may need to cut. Right. right. Or, or, or if you have a very dynamic performer who, um, who loves working the audience and may not have wonderful mic technique and you've got to sit there writing the, uh, writing the game to make sure they can be consistently heard. Oh, got it. Things like that. So that was that from, from pretty far back. And, um, NYU was sort of accidental. Um, I, I, I had some gaps in my theater work, and my mother made me promise to get my substitute teacher's uh, certificate. Something to fall back but, on, right? Well, she was, well, that's the thing. Originally, she thought that I was hired by the physical theater when she found out that when I was stage managing or doing any of these other things, that I was employed by the show. And every time the show closed, I was technically out of work. She couldn't sleep. Mm, yeah. So it was the very simple, do me a favor. Would <laughs> you just get, if, if you got the certificate, then I know you can make your rent. It was that thing. And such a mom thing. It was, it was exactly the mom thing. And mm. she actually said it from, you know, from a really just a concerned place. So I said, tell you what, I'll do it. I'll, I'll fill out the paperwork and I'll do that. And I hit this three month lull. And so I was uh, subbing. And the assistant principal <clears throat> was watching me work with um, with elementary school kids and um, doing remedial math, in which I had no training. But I realized that these kids were essentially experiencing stage fright. They were convinced that they didn't understand math, and that fear was getting in the way of their usually instinctual correct answers. Ah. So I was working with them with theater. And, um, what was it like 60, some, something like 60% of them scored out of remediation by the end of that semester. That must've felt good. Well, it was, yeah. And, and it was the assistant principal there who said, there's a program for you at NYU using theater as a teaching modality, and you should really go and do that. So that's, that was my circuitous way of answering your NYU question. No, that's great. That sounds really interesting. So <laughs> yeah. ha- have you... I mean, whatever you learned in grad school, have you taken that and used it anywhere? I mean, I know that for me anyway, what I did in in college, not much of that has actually come into, you know, day to day um, play. But it sounds like sounds like something really interesting that you went through there. Uh, Has that come in handy? Well, yeah, when I so I taught for a while in New York on and off, it became this thing where I would work shows. And when I wasn't working shows, I would be teaching. And then when I moved up here, it was the same sort of a deal where, um, you know, where I was teaching on and off. And so I became that teacher. You know, it was every principal thinks this is a funny question when they're hiring you. Um, they, they would say they'd start off by saying, so I see you have a theater background. 
Yeah. How'd you like to play the part of a chemistry teacher for six months? You know, they all think that's incredibly funny. Yeah. Um, and so my, I got used to dealing with them and saying, look, I will take something that you're in desperate need of and I will basically improv my way through that as long as you give me some other things that are closer to my core competency. That's great. Yeah. So I was doing that kind of all the way through and um, I kept um, doing a lot of audio work for, for other some people who were in audiobooks pretty early on. And I kept getting the same question, which was, it was a lot of fun acting with you on stage. What's it going to take to get you back to this side of the mic? Mm. So what and did it take? So, um, like four different people asking me that question within a couple of months span. Uh, giving you a little, and, a little tap on the shoulder there. Well, it was, it was, it was people who hadn't spoken with each other who all basically said the same thing. And so then I, um, I arranged a class with a couple of people. Um, I specifically, the first person I went to actually work with a bit just to see what they thought was, was Carol Monda. Oh, love Carol. And, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I worked with Carol and I don't even know if Carol knows that if she had said to me, honey, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be doing this, but it, it was honestly down to, to my experience there before I was moving on. Um, and then after sort of getting the thumbs up from Carol, um, it just, it became, all right, let's go and see who I can learn from and how I'm going to work. And it became a pretty, pretty fast moving train from that point on. So how long ago was that? It's a hard question to answer um, because um, <laughs> I I honestly don't know. Um, I, I'd really have to go back and figure it out, and it's not as easy as going back to figuring out which titles of mine on Audible were the first ones because I was doing some earlier titles that were not on Audible, um, and there are some things that are just have just disappeared. So I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I know I remember when ACX became a thing um, and I was, you know, um, and I remember when you couldn't get into ACX because people like Jeffrey Kafer were beta testers. And so they were in the system before it was public. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I remember hearing about it when that was what was going on. And I was doing some of this work and picking up editing work from from some houses back then as well on the side. It was all stuff that I had just done. So I don't know that there's really been time that I wasn't involved. And so I'm not really sure exactly when I step back in front of the mic. But it sounds like, I mean, if you're talking about when ACX came into being, it sounds like you're talking sometime in the neighborhood of, of eight or 10 years ago. Probably closer to eight than 10 for yeah. me. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing it for a while then. You've got uh, yeah. you've got quite a few books up on uh, on Audible. I, have you used any pseudonyms? Um, yeah. So I've, I've used some. <laughs> don't worry. I'm not. I'm not going to try to out you. I just um, I looked you up on Audible, and I think there were I got something like 30, 31, 32 hits, something like that. Um, right, right. And I thought, no, nah, Stephen's been doing this long enough to where I think he's probably got more titles than that. Um, yeah. And and you know, even if you didn't, it's not like that's a problem. Different people um, do different amounts of work and different types of work. Oh, and I know, I know that narrating is not the only thing you do. So, um, it's not that it's a problem. It's just, I thought I'll bet Stevens used a pseudonym too. Yeah. Stevens used a pseudonym. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it, it was a weird decision because, um, 
and I and I don't really do it anymore. And it really became, um, I I want to be I want to be comfortable enough and proud enough of the work that I've done to put my name on it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, sure. And and so you know they're they're, um, so yeah, taking it, that was really the thing. It it was I felt uncomfortable um, not putting my name on a on a piece of work that was mine in the end. Yeah, no, I can totally understand yeah. that. Um, I know that there are completely valid reasons for using a pseudonym for different types of content, whether it's political or erotica or whatever mm-hmm. it is. People have right. all kinds of reasons. Um, I. I almost did at one point and then that deal fell through and I've debated, gone back and forth. I haven't, nothing else has come up for me where I've thought, hmm, I should probably do a pseudonym. But uh, but I do think about it and I think uh, if something does come up, I will probably be more likely to not use one for pretty much mm-hmm. what you just described. But yeah. um, but I, I certainly think it's possible that I will and I think that there are perfectly valid reasons for it. I oh, I, I, I mostly think of, of you know... Um, uh, people who are school teachers and they have, you know, four-year-olds and they say, when my kid gets into elementary school, I don't want the, some parent to find out that I've got this book out here that's got this content that they might find yeah, but, objectionable. But, but is that parent really going to open their mouth and say something? Because then you've outed that parent as someone who looks through that kind of content. I've thought of that too. It's kind of a two-edged sword there. <laughs> so, so I agree. It's pretty unlikely, but, uh, but I get it. It's, it's a valid concern. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so you so you have been narrating for quite a while. Um, do you have do you feel like you have any kind of a specialty in your narration? Any kind of a personal niche, or are you just happy to narrate whatever? Well, I'm happy to narrate whatever. It's it's gotten really interesting to sort of look at what the publishers choose when they're sending me things, and mm-hmm. to sort of get a sense of what they what niche I fill for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I've been, I've been getting a lot of nonfiction recently and the nonfiction I've been getting, um, is very tech based. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of interesting to sort of feel that, you know, some people doing nonfiction may be very comfortable with medical terminology or legalese. And so essentially I, I feel like I'm, I'm Tantor's C3PO, you know, I (laughs) it's, I'm, I'm human cyborg relations at this point. And, um, you know, and I'm getting these really interesting titles about future technology or, um, or startup companies and, and, and that culture, or the one I'm doing right now is on organizing data. It's actually about information science and it's actually really well-written. It's this really well-written book about a topic I would never pick up. And so I love it when that happens because I wind up learning a lot, but, um, you know, I, I, I never like arguing with a piece of nonfiction, you know? So if, mm-hmm. um, having been a school teacher, um, if I feel like somebody has fallen down in their argument in the book, I narrate it as best I can. I, I always think, okay, I'm the substitute. I'm in the classroom. The big test is tomorrow. And it's my responsibility to make sure the students listening to this book really can pass that test, pass it well. So I have to be really engaging. But if I feel that the argument is faulty, I will then get out of the booth, find somebody, sit down, explain it to them. Because until I've like explained to, to somebody else why I've got a problem with the logic, I have a hard time going on. Yep. <laughs> because, because I can't give the author that kind of feedback. Because 
you know, I don't know if it's if it's simply an editor who who has taken out something that would have supported the argument Mm -hmm. or if it was simply, you know, if it was simply a lapse in logic. But when you do doing a lot of nonfiction, you can do that. Um, But when I'm not doing nonfiction, I I I get um, I get some Judaica, which is kind of interesting because, you know, we don't really hear so much about that. And, uh, you know, nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, you know, (laughs) hey, wait a minute. Like after this, I'm doing I'm doing a historical fiction um, set in a concentration camp. Wow, that's so, got to be a heavy read. Yeah, I mean, I've been prepping this, and um, I'm I live right near the Yiddish Book Center, so I've been able to go over and like some places are, are made up names and some things are real in in the story, and so I've been going over and taking a look, and it's been really intense. Um, no doubt. Right. And then then it's prepping, in that case, three languages. It's prepping Yiddish, German, and Polish. Hmm. So you, uh, that, that actually brings up an interesting point. Um, so you are fluent in several languages, aren't you? Um, I, 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 I can understand when several languages are spoken to me. <laughs> well, I don't mean fluent um, like you're a native speaker, but, but you, you have a lot of knowledge of different languages. Yeah. So I, I, I've done, I've done a fair bit of translating, even trans, there's even ways to do translating from languages you don't speak. There are, <laughs> yeah, me- there, my, my method are, would be Google. <laughs> well, no, you know, so there are methods using, you know, um, if you're, if you've got good enough Latin and you're using a Latin based language and you can work with, um, original documents and then look at other translations. So I've done that as well, mm, okay. where, 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 um, we did an updated version of, of, um, what was it? It was Goldoni. It was Servant of Two Masters. I know that uh, title. Um, they, what was his name? Um, they, they just recently did One Man, Two Governors is based on the same text. Huh. So, you know, so, and so they, that was done relatively recently on the West End and on Broadway I mean, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, so being able to take archaic, Italian, not really speaking Italian, but looking at the original, taking a look at some different, in that case, looking at some different translations and understanding what people did with the story, then how do you translate it so a modern audience can work with it? It's one thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's another thing to sit there and hear the thing in Yiddish and respond in Yiddish or to hear the thing in German and work to respond in German. Yeah. Um, you know, th- that's a different thing. And then doing the accents is a whole different level of that as well. Sounds like quite a challenge, but it sounds uh, really fascinating. Yeah. Well, yeah, they can be fun. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So are you still involved in theater too? Um, when I have time, so I'm, uh, I'm in the Western part of Massachusetts. I'm in what's called the five college area. So I'm right near Smith, Mount Holyoke, UMass Amherst, Amherst college and Hampshire. Okay. Um, so, so there's a bunch of small college towns that are all sort of, I'm surrounded by them. Um, and they have what they call the five college consortium. And so when they do shows, you've got to realize that almost everybody who they're going to cast are about the same age. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly, you know, it's like they're, they're doing Noel Coward and they need someone who's not in their twenties to be auditioned, you know? And so those auditions will come up. And so I'll still be involved in, um, you know, in, in live theater at the university level, which is my favorite 
place, favorite level to work on theater, in part because I like being there when people discover things. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I was enjoying teaching as well, just in general. It's that moment of discovery, being there for somebody's aha moment mm, yeah. is, is a really energizing thing. You know, even if you had no active part in it, just being a witness for it is, is a, is a great thing. Yeah, no, it sounds cool. I've heard that from coaches as well in various different yeah. genres, but one of the things they love about coaching is getting somebody to that aha moment. Yeah. So absolutely, that's very cool. So, so let's see, you've been narrating for somewhere in the neighborhood of eight, seven, nine, ten years, something like that. And, um, and at some point, seven and a half, let's say seven and a half, that feels right. Seven and a half. All right. That's there we are. Seven and a half. (laughs) So at some point, uh, this, uh, entity came into being called listen to a book. How did that happen? All right. So if it weren't for another narrator named Mike Vendetti, this would not have happened. I know that name. Yes. So Mike Vendetti is a wonderful narrator. He lives in um, Colorado and he is significantly older than I am. And um, he got, before ACX was a thing, he's one of the few people who got a direct publishing contract with Audible in order to push content to Audible directly. Um, And Mike's idea, which is sort of where this thing came from, was, well, if he focused on things that were in the public domain, then, you know, then there wouldn't be these rights holders to be dealing with. The only rights holder would be the performance copyright. So if you wanted to do some Edgar Allan Poe, as an example, you would be able to work with him and and, and do that and get that content up there. Mike um, announced after doing this for many years that he was ready to be done. And I wrote him this long letter and I had no idea. I basically saying, um, um, this is too important to let this go away. I mean, being somebody who really loved, loves working in the classics and theater for me, this was essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really see a lot of action going on except when one of the major publishers will hire a name actor to come in and to do one of these stories. And so I didn't feel that they were really getting the kind of uh, focus they deserved. And uh, Mike responded with, well, I can teach you what I do and um, you know, I can show you how and you can help me run the business. And so I came in and um, we automated and changed a bunch of things. It turned from what he was calling it into listen to a book. Um, you know, we were able to automate huge amounts of the work. There were things that used to take days that suddenly took a couple of hours to complete. Oh, wow. That's uh, quite, quite an increase in efficiency there. Yeah. And, um, as I was running things, um, in my area there, um, there was, um, uh, a business incubator and, a, and an accelerator. So it's called value venture mentors and they have both, uh, um, an incubator and an accelerator program. And I showed up there. And I said to them, hi, I've got this thing. I think it's a business. <laughs> and um, they were wonderful. And they really helped me figure out how to take a look at it and figure out how you evaluate which directions to try and grow things. Um, and so I, what started as listen to a book has now turned into Spoken Realms. And um, that's over 1,800 audiobooks. books. Um, 
that are, you know, that are out there that were produced through the system we use. That's very cool. I've, uh, I've done one and I know a lot of people who have done one and more than one through listen to a book and through spoken realms now. Yeah. I mean, my thought is, you know, a narrator doesn't make any money the days that the, that the studio is dark. So regardless of whether you're working for, you know, whether you're doing books on ACX or if you're, if you're working for the major publishers, you will hit dark periods. So if you have a pet project, something that you love to do, do it between these other things on your own time scale, on your own timeline. And then you are the only rights holder because Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe and all these people, they don't show up for their half. Mm -hmm. So it might as well go to you. Um, you know, and I know some people who've used it to really flesh out their portfolio of titles, Yeah. you know, or to show deep specialty in an area. So there've been people who've been using it that way. And I've been really happy to be part of that as well. That's cool. And it's, it's not just, I mean, you don't do just public domain stuff. I mean, your, my no. understanding is that it's also a really good option for people who are in a different country that is mm -hmm. not serviced by ACX. Well, the way I, and, um, I've had a lot of people try to bring me work and then I send them back to ACX and they look at me a little bit funny because they think I'm turning down work. But in the same way that I don't feel every client is my client, I know there are some jobs that are better for ACX and there are some you can't do on ACX for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's country related, but sometimes it can be something else. So the way I look at it is if you know the, the saying about the square peg in the round hole. You know, um, you can't put a square peg in a round hole. ACX has a round hole. If you have a round peg, go there and, and, and use that. Because as an example, if it's just you and, and, a, and a rights holder and you don't have a philosophical problem with sending stuff through Audible Amazon, you're not somebody who's trying to figure out how to do things without that, mm -hmm. then um, the things I can't match are um, we get paid quarterly versus being paid monthly, which you know, means you're seeing the same amount of money, but you're not getting it as often. Right. But really, you know, the codes aren't, I don't care about the codes, the 25 giveaway codes are not promoting your audiobook. That's really just to make it so that the page isn't empty because we all know that we're more likely if, if, uh, if an item is for sale in two places online and it's the identical item and the price is the same, if one of those things has more reviews on it, we will buy that one. Yep. So that's really what the codes are for. The deep value they offer I, that no one else can match is that dashboard. Because an independent author who is, you know, might say, I'm going to do this Twitter campaign. I'm going to do this thing on Patreon. I'm going to do all these things. And then we're going to see which ones move the needle. Mm -hmm. Well, that dashboard is how you check whether or not you're moving the needle in sales. Oh, because that's updated daily. Whereas. Or almost daily. Yeah. Whereas I don't. Right. Whereas I only get information when we get paid, which is once a quarter. Yeah. Now, of course, the big publishers don't use a dashboard like that. So there are other ways, but it's too convenient a tool to take that away from an independent author who, you know, who doesn't have the same kinds of, of, of access to information that Harper Collins might have or sure. Penguin Randoms, you know? So, you know, if, if you want to do a royalty share with, two narrators. You can't do that on ECX as an example. Mm -hmm. there, there's no way to do that. 
I can do that. I, you know, if you're going to do, um, I'm going to take a partial payment and I'm going to get something other than 50% of the royalties. I can do that. You can't do that on ACX. Oh, you're talking so about again, a, a hybrid? Well, you, you could call it a hybrid deal. You know, I mean, I know that's the terminology we use, but, you know, I think people who, you know, the idea of saying to someone, my usual rate is X per finished hour. And they say, I can't afford X per finished hour. So you say, well, tell you what, let's do X minus $50 per finished hour or minus $100 per finished hour. And I will take 25% of the royalties instead of 50. Oh, you can, got it. Got it. So you can, right. so you can, you can arrange it with much more specificity than exactly. you can do. And I know that you can't even do a hybrid at all through ACX. Um, te Correct. technically it has to be done outside of ACX plus with ACX. Um, so Correct. you're saying that not only can you do a hybrid, you also have a lot of flexibility in how you can structure it. Exactly. And so that's what I mean by if you have a square peg project instead of a round peg project, mm -hmm. if you have something that you look at the ACX thing and you go, yeah, we could kind of, but not really. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing where I can help. And where, where you wind up popularly, that's you've got a rights holder or a narrator who doesn't live in one of the countries ACX is functioning in. But it could just as easily be an interesting money arrangement like that. Mm -hmm. or, or you want to do a dual narration royalty share where everybody gets 33%. Yeah, and I know that that's it, doing a royalty share with multiple narrators is far more difficult than doing a royal than right. doing a uh, per finished hour with multiple narrators. Exactly. You, you know, gotta have so there's a, a lot of trust that. in that relationship. <laughs> well, and part of the reason why you have to have a lot of trust on ACX is one of the narrators is the one who's going to be paid. Right, that's that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the other point is that you're at best in that situation, you're getting 25%, not 33%, mm -hmm. because the the author is getting 50, this other narrator is getting 50, and they're sending you half. Right. Whereas I've had three people come to me and say, we're going to do 33, 33, 34, mm -hmm. you know, because that, that comes up to 100%. We're right, going to split right. it that way. And, um, you know, and this is going to be what we're doing. And the agreement is that the rights holder is going to pay for the proofing, editing and mastering. So I can create that project and you can't create that combination on, on ACX. Right. No, that sounds cool. It sounds like you have a lot, yeah. of, a lot of flexibility there. Well, I, I, in part of me wishes we were having this discussion a couple of weeks from now because there is stuff that I can't announce yet because I've been talking to SAG-AFTRA. I can oh. say that much, but I can't give you the details of, aside from that I'm in talks with SAG-AFTRA that there will be other changes coming up. Well, I'm sure that once that happens, you will be announcing it in all the places <laughs> that I see you online. <laughs> yes, and, yes. And by then, uh, hopefully everybody will have heard this and so they'll be waiting with bated breath. We can hope. <laughs> so when you're, uh, when you are personally narrating, um, mm. do you narrate at home or do you typically go into studios? I was narrating at home, um, live in a, so, um, the logical place in my home for the studio was technically in the basement and, um, and I was set up in the basement floor. Everything was great. And, you know, when you've got teenagers, it becomes this annoying thing where, where you become Mr. Annoying Guy saying, hey, I've got this deadline. Can you not walk? Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
or can you know because it's not it's not talking that gets in the way when you're in a studio bricks booth it's things like a oh, boom ba boom ba because yep. you can't stop things that shake the house right things like that come in um so part um i moved the studio out of the house into um an office building that's nearby so i'm in east hampton massachusetts which is an old mill town and they converted many of these old mills into office buildings and so i now have a spoken realm studio which is in the button building because this used to be a mill that made buttons <laughs> and it's a 15 minute walk from my door and i walk by the felt mill i mean there's we're talking like really old school mill stuff here in mm -hmm. town and uh and it's it's a nice place so it's it's nice to actually um i i work in my own studio there's a there's another studio here in the valley where i i um i've worked and i used to to um when i needed to um when i needed to have um isdn access I had a pre-arrangement with the other studio owner and I would go there and work with him there. Mm. You know, so, you know, and that's more when you're doing stuff that's not audiobooks. Right. Yeah. I've never heard of an audiobook narrator having to have a studio with ISDN. No, no. <laughs> that, that would be quite the rarity. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Well, that, that's cool. So now you don't have to worry about teenagers and no matter how hard they try, I don't think it is physically possible for teenagers to not be noisy. No, you know, and you just, you feel like the bad guy and you're like, I know, no. And then this, this was just a wonderful deal on this space and the space is beautiful. So it, it's kind of nice to, it's nice to have a commute again. That's cool. Kind of get you out of the house. I know that that's something that is, um, it's another two edged sword is being able to work at home. The problem is then home becomes work. And, uh, right. so, so it is kind of nice to have that separate space. I'm sure. Right, right. Definitely. Well, that's, that's, uh, that sounds like a good deal. Um, so are there any, are there any books that, I mean, you, I know that you mentioned earlier that you have done a few things under a pseudonym. Are there, is there anything mm -hmm. at this point in your career that you would refuse to narrate that you're just not interested in or couldn't do it for whatever reason? Um, my, and you know, this is interesting because when you sign on with some of the publishers, they ask different versions of these, of this question, mm -hmm. like essentially, where is your line? We don't want to send you stuff that is a problem. And, um, the narrator who I think phrased it the best, and I, I never get it as well as his, um, Greg Tremblay said something and I just felt it was so perfect. It, it's really about, um, it's not, it's not about orientation. It's not about gender. It's not about any of the things that people think of as a hop. It's about respect and respecting all of the characters in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, that that's where the lines will typically get drawn for me. It's, it, it's more about that than, you know, this genre or that genre. Yeah, no, that, so, that, I, I yeah. can totally understand that. I've heard from several people that the line for them is, uh, romance is no problem. Even erotica is no problem. But the line for them is consensual versus non-consensual right. sex. And so right. there, there you have a, you know, uh, I, I guess that one way to put that would be a lack of respect for, uh, for the characters. Right. Well, and that's because it actually extends out beyond just sexual content. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there, there are other things that, you know, that do or don't respect the characters in the story. Mm -hmm. So and, it's a, it's a very case yeah. by case thing then. It becomes a case by case thing. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. 
What about uh, Spoken Realms? Is there anything that you that the company itself would turn down? Is it is it the same as your line, or is it different? Right. So, um, so essentially, there's there's two different things, and this this will get close to me with the part that I can't talk about yet. But here's here's the basic dividing line. When a narrator has access to the project tracker, the method through which we do our work, they can propose anything. And I'm not filtering that for content. So, you know, the the featured voices, people working through the project tracker, that is anything that people are trying to get done. Um, and I and that content isn't edited in that way. Um we will be doing, we are doing, we've done our first one already, um, about 10 productions a year as in-house productions where we're, where we're hiring talent and bringing people into studio and doing, sometimes we're acquiring the rights to those things. It depends upon the situation. And we'll be doing about 10 of those per year. And um, those will, you know, I can't really go into the details because those are the ones that we're, we're talking with the union about at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so those things will be, will be worked to fit the brand. Those things will be what fits what, what it is that we're doing. And I think that, that, um, so that's, that's a different thing. Um, how do I even put this really the right way? I think to put this is you're going to see some changes at the spoken realms website. That's going to make this clearer. Um, any narrator who's part of the system has the right to use the system. Mm-hmm. You know, and they can use the system to get work done as long as all of the rights are taken into account. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people don't understand that they, you know, that the person who's who they're working with doesn't actually have the right to give them the the right for an audiobook. And I've had to point that out to a few people. And so in that case, I'm not talking about things in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so as long as all rights are taken care of, people can do their own projects. It's it's the in-house projects which will which will um, which will um, hew to a to a theme. There are things which which will become clear as that moves forward. Sure. Yeah. So, no, I, I understand. If you can't talk about it, but it, it what you're saying makes sense. Is that um, individual people who are associated can do whatever projects they want as long as all the rights are taken care of. But the things that are being undertaken by spoken realms as a company, um, as the, the publisher, I guess it is, um, that those are going to have uh, a few more specific requirements. And that's cool. I I'm sure that everybody will look forward to hearing all about that. Right. I mean, so essentially, yeah. So it's the spoken realm studios, content which will be different from the other content in order like if you want to put a line there the difference between what is done through acx versus audible studios in that way mm-hmm. um but but really um the, the thing is the way this business is put together um the the narrator is the focus in most of the other systems what's going on is they're act you know the narrators are um are a commodity Mm-hmm. And the people who the systems are geared towards are the rights holders. Yeah. We're doing the work. And since the system grew out of a situation, since initially the initial content was public domain content, um, there, wa- there weren't rights holders to think about. So the initial system was built with the idea that the key person is the, you know, is the lead narrator on the project. Mm-hmm. 
they're the person who knows the most about producing an audiobook in this case, especially if it's a first-time author who's never done it. So the decisions and the, the things to move forward, as long as they have buy-in with the rest of the people on their project, the person who's flipping those switches is not the rights holder. It's the project manager. It's the person, it's the narrator in most cases mm-hmm. who's saying, okay, yes, I've, I've done my pickups. Yes, they've been signed off on. Now I'm going to fill out the final form and, and submit the audio. Yeah. So you mentioned um, about the rights and about, you know, you having to explain to people that are not public domain um, works mm-hmm. that that the person that is having them do the work is not necessarily the person who has the rights to have them do the work. Um, yep. Have you ever run into uh, problems with people taking public domain items that it turns out are not actually public domain? Um, actually, the problem happens more the other way around. So we have been contacted by different estates of different people who, um, you know, um, a good example would be um, the um, Arthur C. Clarke estate. Mm-hmm. Because the one of his most famous stories, um, 10,000 Names of God, uh, the story itself is in the public domain. It wasn't properly renewed. The, uh... So the story itself is a public domain story. There is also a collection which was named that, which has the story in it, but has other stories as well. So the um, so they contacted Audible to have a takedown notice to say that we didn't have the right. And so then I explained back to Audible, you know, it the story is in the public domain, unless they'd like to prove to you it's not. And I gave them the information. And they disappeared. They went away. So we've had things like that a number of times where where an estate essentially tries to, you know, sends to Audible, we want this taken down. We're in control of everything. And then I would wind up pointing back out to Audible that, well, you're in control of most things, except <laughs> for the things that were not renewed when copyrights needed to be renewed. Interesting. So it hasn't yes. it hasn't happened the other way around where somebody brought a work to you and said this is public domain and it turned out that they were wrong. Um, no, that happens often because a lot of people don't understand U.S. Pub, um, U.S. copyright law. Oh, so it does happen. It does happen usually, but those things those things get cut off really quickly. Somebody will propose the project. I'll explain that um, you know that and um, that even though, yes, this is considered a classic, or even though, yes, this is public domain in the UK and in Canada, it's not in the public domain in the United States. Oh, man, bringing other countries in, that complicates things. Well, and and since not all of the um, narrators who I'm working with are in the United States, you know, they get a pass. If somebody says, well, wait a minute, this is in the public domain, and I'm like, yeah, you're right, you're in the UK. It's in the public domain where you are. It isn't in the public domain here yet. And that matters because it's going to be distributed in the US as well. Well, and I can turn off the United States as a place where you distribute, but the United States is still where most audiobooks are consumed. And if you point out to somebody that the biggest market is the market that I won't be able to distribute it in, <laughs> they think twice yeah. about distributing it. Not worth the effort. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, a quick overview of that, anything before 1923 is in the public domain. Everything between 1923 and 1964 needed to be renewed in its 28th year in order to still be under copyright. 
from 1964 to, I think, 1978, um, it was 95, 95 years since date of publication. And then after that, from 1978 onward, we're turning into a life plus 70 country. So if at the end of this year, they do not change the laws here again, it will be the first time in over 20 years that anything will have gone into the public domain in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Things, things are changing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of that has to do with, with Disney protecting, um, Steamboat Willie. I mean, they've put a lot of, a lot of money into trying to keep the earliest, um, occurrences of their characters from falling into the public domain. Interesting. So there's been a lot of, of money from that end lobbying in order to change the laws. Um, Disney actually came out saying that they have a different way of defending um, Mickey and, and other things now. They're going to use um, dilution of, of trademark. Hmm. So it's essentially, if somebody makes um, Mickey Mouse mugs or sweatshirts or whatever and is selling them online, if the online presence is too professional then they can say, oh, people could mistake this for official merchandise. You're not allowed to do that because you're diluting our, our trademark. Uh, and trademark doesn't have the same limitation hmm. as, as as copyright does. Yeah. Interesting to see who has the power and stuff like this. Yeah, exactly. So we've been waiting for a really long time for that needle to move from 1923 and move forward so that we can get some of the later works of F. Scott Fitzgerald as an example. Mm-hmm. Because right now it's just his early works and everything like the great Gatsby that's on the other side of the line. Yeah. yeah. Well, interesting. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Yeah. Um, so since you've been doing this for a while and since you actually have a production company that deals with audiobooks, uh, mm -hmm. what, give us some words of wisdom for aspiring narrators and rights holders. If you have any that are, uh, that are out there thinking, I want to do some narration. Well, the question is, do you want to do some narration or do you want, do you want to make your living doing this? I mean, those are two different things because just like there are people who do community theater and, you know, and then have, have a day job, mm -hmm. there are people, you know, I think there's a lot of people who will, will do an occasional book, make a little bit of money off of that and kind of feel that they've satisfied that performance need. Mm-hmm. Make, making a living is getting, um, very interesting. It's a lot more uh, difficult than doing a book every now and then. Well, that's the thing. And it's, it, um, what, what you have to realize, what I think a lot of people need to think about is that when, if they're going to use ACX as their starting point and they're going to look at ACX and at the titles there as things to audition for, and if that's all they're doing, a few things are wrong. The first thing is that they're ignoring about 50% of the value of ACX as a platform or Spoken Realms as a platform, because in this case, it's the same. Um, and, you know, and what, what I mean by that is that the real value of either ACX or Spoken Realms or Findaway, for that matter, is not auditioning for things that you get sent or you see there. Once it's there, you're competing against a thousand people, 10,000 people for that job. Mm -hmm. The real thing for you to do is to find out where the writers are in your physical area. Go to a writer's conference. Be the one person in the room who's an audiobook narrator and not a writer. See if you can actually give a presentation on how to make an audiobook 
or just show up and be that fan who says, yes, I do audiobooks and I would love to record your thing. You're then making that one-on-one connection with a real person. Mm -hmm. And when that person says, well, I don't know how to make an audiobook, you say, ACX, Findaway, Spoken Realms, whoever, they've got all the contracts and the distribution in place. I will walk you through it. Mm Mm-hmm. So if all you do is look at, you know, wait for find a way to send you auditions or just audition for what's on ACX, you're really not using either of those platforms as an example to its fullest. In either case, you can bring a job there. And whereas what's going on in, in my system is, yeah, I we occasionally are doing jobs in-house and those things will be changing once I can announce what the changes are. But um, I treat the active um, users of the system as a roster. So I hear what you produce, what somebody else produces. And when I'm talking to a new rights holder, I'm thinking of the voices that have recently gone through on the system. Mm -hmm. I learn who, you know, who really understands this, who can do those kinds of accents, what you're interested in when you're given free reign to work on whatever, instead of, you know, doing, you know, these are the things you're choosing to work on. So it becomes, I think, a much better representation and a a more lively roster than simply me having a page where I've got samples of what people submitted to me once three years ago. Right. Yeah. I've I've got a good sense of what people are actually doing, how much time they have and what they're doing now versus what they were doing two years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that's cool. This is great, Stephen. I really appreciate uh, you being able to come in and and talk about your own narration and about uh, Spoken Realms as well. It sounds like um, Spoken Realms is doing really well. I mean, you went from listen to a book to Spoken Realms, and now you're in talks with the union about something that you'll be letting us all know about soon. It it just sounds like uh, everything's going well in that world. You know, um, <clears throat> it's yeah, it's 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 interesting. To, I I don't usually focus on that. If that makes sense. It's like, it's, it's, I focus on what the day is that's in front of me. <laughs> um, I, I find it easier to, to think about that way. You know, like every once in a while I have to sit down and do some future planning and think, think about, you know, what does this look like three years and five years from now? Mm-hmm. But I, it's, it's a lot easier to simply say, you know, these are, this is the, this is the series of things I need to do this week. Some of it is my own narration. Some of it is production. Some of it is is talking with people about, you know, about about whether or not we're going to acquire the rights of something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it it's turned into a thing. And since I'm no longer the only person behind, you know, behind the curtain, now now that there are a few people that I'm working with, it's also become something different. You know, so yeah, it's become it, a team. It, it, yeah, and it sounds it just sounds like it's it's going well. So uh, so congratulations on the success there. Thank you. As as well as your own narration as well. I mean, I know that you're still doing that all the time as well. So that's great. So appreciate your time. Where can people find you if they want to look you up uh, online? Well, you can depending upon if you're looking for me personally. Um, on most social media, I have my entire name. So Stephen with a V J A Y. C-O-H-E-N. That would be my Twitter handle. You could do stephenjcohen.com and my website there, which would link you to every other place, the stuff to me on Facebook and all that. Or if you want to learn more about Spoken Realms, you can go to spokenrealms.com and take a look at what's there and see whether or not you've got any questions or you want to click on the join us link and fill out the form and let us know who you are. 
What what kind of um, that, I didn't mean to get back into it now, but that um, I I forgot to ask that earlier. What what do you what kind of a process is there if somebody wants to do a project through Spoken Realms for the first time? Um, so there's a, there's two things. There's a general submission form and I've had people say, Hey, I'm getting in touch with you because there's this project I'm doing and I want to see if spoken realms is the right platform to do this on. And in that case, I then talk through the project, which is obviously the more important thing at the moment. And then if it becomes clear, they want to move forward. I point out to them that, um, this is a narrator driven system. And being a narrator-driven system, they just need to fill out the, the the join us link information, and then they get added to the system, and then they can propose the project and move forward from there. So is there any kind of, uh, I mean, I know that a lot of times when people talk about getting on the roster at any of the publishers, mm-hmm. there's a, some sort of a vetting process where they have to yes. send in samples, and they have to do this, and they have to do that. Is there is there any kind of a vetting process that you have to determine yeah. whether or not you want to go ahead and approve a project for a specific narrator? Well, the vetting project, the vetting process for a project is different than the vetting for a narrator. So the join us link is really the vetting for the narrator. Mm-hmm. And I will just say that it is in everybody's best interest if you actually read the information, fill out the form, and put the answers in the right fields to the right questions instead of looking at a field not knowing what i mean and then just putting in this generic boilerplate that you send to all these other places um because you don't know what goes in that field now i if i get something that looks like that then i tend to delete it um i've had people exactly in that situation who then go over to the contact link and they'll say hi i was trying to fill out this form but i'm not sure what you mean here And then I have the conversation and then they go and fill out the form. Why do I do that? Well, think about it this way. The person who just powers through the form is the person who doesn't bother looking up proper pronunciation, doesn't bother, (laughs) doesn't bother really checking to see whether or not the work is in the public domain. They're actually just powering forward and thinking, well, I'm going to do everything and I'm, I'm not going to really give that kind of focused attention. So, the easiest way to not hear back is to not really pay attention to the contents on the form. Words to live by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I know I'm not the only place that does that. I've, I've heard this from, from a few other rosters that uh, poorly filling out that initial form um, is a reason why. Because again, we're in a business that does research. And just do your due diligence before you fill out the form. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, just yeah. do, doing things correctly can can get you far. I I know that I've read other things from other people uh, who have posted uh, job job things not for audiobooks but for other voice work, and half the people send in files that are named incorrectly when the naming yes. convention is right there in the email. And it's like the fastest way to not get heard is to not pay attention. Absolutely. You know, the number of times I know people who've lost video game jobs because of exactly that. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't say first name, last name. It says first name, last initial. Ah, yeah. You know, something really particular that's in the naming convention. And you know what they're doing is they're doing exactly the same thing I'm describing with the form. If you can't follow this instruction, then you might be too much work for them to bother working with you. Yeah. Weed them out. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so what about um, actually hearing narrators? Does that enter into it at all? When, it when... Do, well, when I hear narrators, so there, there definitely have been a couple of people who, uh, who have filled out the form properly, who I then listen to, and I kind of explain, you know, what I'm hearing is this, what I'm hearing is that if you're open to me making some suggestions, I can tell you who you might want to go and work with mm-hmm. on problem X or problem Y. Sometimes, you know, I found a wonderful narrator who just sort of bought any microphone and they're recording in their bathroom, literally. You know, and I'm going, mm-hmm. I'm listening, I'm thinking, that's such a wonderful emotional piece, but the recording space is horrible. Mm-hmm. And then I found out it was literally the spare bathroom. <laughs> and I just had to explain, I said, look, you need to connect with an engineer who's local to you. Here's the problem. Mm-hmm. And then three months later, I got a submission from the same person because they'd set up a more proper recording space. Um, and I, I'm just as likely to send somebody, you know, to say, hey, you might want to take some classes with Carol or Johnny Heller or or, or Sean Pratt. And, you know, and I kind of point them in different directions based upon what I've seen of them in that beginning piece to then say, I think there's, you know, there's something for you to do here. Mm-hmm. And I'll also get from those people. Um, I'll get a note from, from Sean Pratt saying, you know, I've got this student and, um, and they're really interested in X. And I think that some of, some of these things are in the public domain you know, can you walk, help walk them through their first project? And we've done that a few times. It's been, it's been interesting to kind of work both ways there. That's but, great. It's, it's a as great, long great as the community. Form, yeah. As long as the form doesn't weed somebody out, um, then there's feedback. Okay. And, and I, I just try to be as, as polite and try to see how receptive the person is going to be. If I think there's something they may want to do first. Sure. Yeah. That makes, yeah. that makes sense. It's, it's good to hear that. It's such a great community, um, that, you know, those relationships exist and you can talk to other people and get people up and running. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. All right. So, uh, so Stephen J. Cohen and Spoken Realms, um, I think that's, I think we hit all the places where people could find you and, uh, whatever they need to know. Any, yeah. any anything else? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there is. As soon as we, as soon as we, uh, finish the conversation, I'll be like, Oh, I wish I had asked Steven this. Yeah. Are you going to yeah. be at APAC? Yeah, I will. Actually, I've got a question for you. Okay. What is that theme music? Theme music. The oh, mu- for, the music. for this show? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's called uh, deed. I do. That is a great recording. I, yeah, I, I love the music. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it does have vocals, but I've taken the vocals out cause I thought it just would be too, um, distracting. Oh no, I get so. that. I would love, I would love to, to hear the full track at some point. Sure. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Yeah, that'd be great. And yeah, I will be at APAC and this year actually we, we've got a nominated book in the Audis. Oh, which one is that? So Kitty Hendrix's, um, um, Daisy Miller was actually done through Spoken Realms. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. And I'm so, you know, working, working with Kitty is, is always a wonderful thing. And we have this, this kind of like thing where we go back and forth and we've gone back and forth on so many titles and it was just such a perfect title for her. I was so happy when, when I heard she got the, the nomination. That's great. So clearly you weren't the only one who thought it was a perfect title for her. Yeah, exactly. That's great. (laughs) So you're going to be, um, be, are you going to be at Johnny's workshop too? Yes, I will. So you'll be there the day before and then for APAC and then you'll be going to the Audis. 
Yes, I will. That's great. Well, I will see you there then. And hopefully we'll see a lot of people who are listening to this as well. And everybody is now going to be looking forward to hearing what it is that you have to announce a couple of weeks from now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here waiting. I keep thinking every time the email um, bings, (laughs) I I think it's the the message from the union. That's great. Well, I hope it comes soon. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Really appreciate your time. No problem, Rich. Nice to talk to you. All right. We'll see you soon. Okay. Talk to you soon. Uh Well, that would have been it for tonight, but I was right. I did forget something. Stephen and I finished our conversation, and shortly thereafter, Stephen remembered that we never talked about the software that he created that has been enormously helpful to many, many narrators, myself included. Second opinion. Stephen was gracious enough to return to the speakeasy to discuss it for a bit. So in addition to narrating and uh, Spoken Realms, I know that you are also in charge of a certain piece of software that has come in incredibly handy for many of us who are narrators. Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah, so, um, uh, well, in in running Spoken Realms, I had people who were submitting audio to me. And you know how large audio files can be, especially if you're not asking for MP3s. Oh, yeah. If you're asking for lossless files like WAVs or FLAC files, they can be huge. Mm-hmm. And so people would spend quite literally all night uploading a book, and I would get get it from them only to find out that they had missed one of the important specifications somehow. Ah. And, you know, and, and so what I did was originally I was trying to implement it on the server in a way that people could upload and it would tell you when it would upload. But I realized even that meant they'd have to wait for the file to upload in sure. order to figure out whether it was good or not. Right. And so, if you're talking about a gig's worth of data, that's going to take a long time. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so what I did was I, I sat down and figured, well, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not a trained programmer. I'm a trained audio engineer. Uh, I learned to program computers because with my bar mitzvah money, when I was a kid, I bought a Commodore 64. Oh my God, that's going back. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, and and when when you were going to school at that time, if you took computer classes when I did growing up, um, the point was they figured everybody was going to learn a little bit of programming and you would write programs to simplify your life. Mm-hmm. That was really the point of, of elementary and secondary school computer education at the time that I was growing up. So I had learned, you know, some programming in some primitive languages. And over time, I picked up little bits of other languages here and there. But I'm not a trained programmer. I'm a trained audio engineer. And what I did was I found a sound library, an open source sound library called Sox, S-O-X. And the Sox library was able to uh, run all of the analyses. You know, so I thought, well, if I could figure out how to write a very simple program that is a wrapper around this, Uh, I could give it to end users because originally I had written it in such a way that I was running it at the command line on my computer when I would receive files. And I just kept thinking, you know, I can't ask end users to run something from a command line. Right. So that you, just won't fly. Yeah. So, you know, the functionality is there, but you don't want to hand that off to users who are not going to even going to know how to start a command line half the time. Exactly. And so what was really difficult was I had written one set of code and I needed to figure out, well, how do I write this or rewrite this 
So I, it can run on more than just a Mac or more than just Windows. Um, and so I then had to teach myself yet another programming language in order to make that happen. And so far, Second Opinion has now gone through two different programming languages because Apple, in one of its recent updates, basically um, made it so Second Opinion can't properly function anymore. So I then had to rewrite it yet again. So version three is a complete rewrite. Wow. Of the code. Um, yeah. So um, what what's always been interesting is um, if you have a very hectic life, having having a hobby that is very ordered is a good way to kind of recover in your day. So <laughs> kind of really, that, that's what, com- well, yeah, that's what computer programming has been for me. It's like, okay, I've got all of this stuff and it's really repetitive. How do I do the same thing to these hundred or thousand files? Mm-hmm. You know, and again, coming at it from, I, I knew what I was looking for. I then wrote it so it would, it would move through the files and do all that work. Um, and of course, there have been some changes over time, like ACX has um, relaxed some of the standards they ask for, and I wrote it to default to the original mm-hmm. ones. Oh, which, so which, if I remember correctly, the original was it had to be like almost exactly three and a half seconds at the end or a half second at the beginning or, or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Half second at the beginning, between one half and three quarters of a second at the beginning and three and a half to five seconds at the end. Okay. And, and that is now relaxed. Yeah, they've relaxed that a bit. And so what I did when I was rewriting is I still default to those values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I make it so you can change those values if you have other values that you like to use. Um, and what I will be adding when I have time, and again, this is all when I've got time between books and things. Mm-hmm. When I've got time, I'm going to add in that it will remember your your last settings. So that way it won't always jump back to my defaults. Oh, that's, that's good. So what, what yeah. specifically does it check for? Well, let's see. It checks for a few things. And one of the things it checks for, it's doing its best. So it checks it checks the, the head and the tail of the file to make sure there's the right amount of, of space before and after, like we were just talking about. It checks to make sure that the peak, the peak audio is at or less than negative three decibels. That's something a lot of people, I, I've seen this one of quite a few times, I've had somebody come to me saying, all the other specs are right, but my peaks are negative five. And I I say, you're good. Yeah. And because people often forget that since we're dealing with negative numbers, negative five is less than negative three. Oh, right, right, right. So this is somebody who's not used to the terminology, right? Exactly. So I I, I will get things like that. So it checks for that. It checks for average RMS, um, which which is a way to measure loudness. in audiobooks, we use RMS, not LUFS. LUFS is actually a better standard for how the human ear works, but audiobooks, um, it'll take a long time before we adjust to broadcast standards where they use a different measurement, which is more about perceptual sound because you don't hear every sound frequency with the same intensity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, I, that's the difference between LUPS and RMS. Yeah, I've, I've heard a couple of discussions about that, and some of it goes over my head, some of it doesn't. But uh, I, all I know is that um, LUPS is, uh, I think, generally considered a, a better measure, but it's not the one that's yes. typically used. 
Yeah, it, it's more and more used in broadcast, and it's become sort of a de facto standard in Europe. Um, any large industry is going to take a long time to adjust. And I would think that unless there's a real reason why audiobooks need to move, they'll probably stay where they are until we wind up in a time in the future where audiobooks and podcasts really need to be measured by the same stick. Mm-hmm. So I would guess that. Um, the other thing it tries to do is it tries to evaluate your noise floor. Oh. Um, and the reason why I have to say it that way is since it's a piece of software, it doesn't really know when you're talking or not. Mm-hmm. This is actually the most common email I get from people. They'll say, I'm looking at my file. I know that I don't talk till 0.6 seconds, but it tells me that the, that the, that the beginning is too short. And invariably what the problem is, so what the software is doing is the software looks at the snippet of the file from the beginning mm-hmm. and it counts until you exceed negative 60, negative 60 decibels, even for a microsecond. Mm, yeah. So if something has bumped in the room or done something like that and your room tone just went above negative 60, it assumes you've started to talk. Yeah. I got the second opinion that actually caught me on that at one point. I thought, what? Yeah. This file didn't pass? And then I looked at it and I finally realized it was because there was some kind of a click. I don't know. There are a couple of things in my booth that every once in a while they'll move and I'll just get a tiny, tiny, tiny little click. And I almost always hear them. But for some reason, I I didn't catch this one. And even looking at it initially, I still didn't see it. And so I had to actually look at the very specific information that Second Opinion gave me as to where it occurred based on the time. And so I went back to right at that point, and then I increased the size of the waveform enough to where I saw that's what it's looking at. I'll be damned. So that's a it's a very sensitive uh, sensitive gauge there. Right. Well, because essentially, since um, it, again, it's not a human ear that's listening to to you. Right. What it's what you know, it is just doing measurements, and so the assumption is maybe you've started to clear your throat and you're about to talk. Mm-hmm. And so that that's different from room tone. And so that's that's a common thing. And then the name actually came up because um, there were people who were using the initial versions of the program as their mastering tool. Oh. Um, so what they would do, because initially it didn't occur to me um, that people would abuse the fact that I was, well, abuse, abuse probably isn't the right word. Um, a, the original version of the piece of software would do some basic fixes for you. Oh, right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I always set it so that it will only let me know what's going on without making any changes. Right. I forgot that it actually had the ability to make the changes. Well, so the reason why I pulled them out is um, because people, you know, um, how do you even, I, I, okay, this is how I would say it. So what happens is um, I tested some very logical things. Um, Everything else was in specification, but the peaks exceeded negative three, but didn't actually peak out at zero, Mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. And so if you were in that case, it would, you know, it would apply a limiter and fix that for you. Or if the, if the heads and tails of your file were clean, but, but a little too long, it would try to fix those for, you know, it would do mm-hmm. simple things. Right. But what was really wild was I, I started to have people sending me files that would cause it to do very illogical things to their audio. Ah, uh, 
it was not not operating in the way that you would have expected it to based on the few scenarios that you put in. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it I, I realized that for me to actually solve every problem somebody was going to give me, it would have needed to turn into my full time job. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, at, at least for a while. And that wasn't going to happen. And I had already, again, named it second opinion because that was really the point. Hi, I think this is mastered. I want to get somebody else's opinion as to whether or not the job was done properly. Sure, yeah. Um, the other nice thing is um, that text file that it outputs, I've been submitting that along with every job um, that that we do. Uh, and there are even some production houses that now use it in exactly that way, and they'll refer to that file. Oh, that's and great. what's been what's been really interesting is a, a couple of times I've had Audible come back to me saying that there's a problem in a project we've submitted. And then I'll say, well, if you look at the second opinion file, you'll see that the original one we sent to you was okay. The problem must have occurred after it arrived on your server. Mm, got it, yeah. Which was Right, to point out a problem in their system, not in ours. Right. So it it served it started to serve as as a default way for people to describe their files. Um that's, you know, that's great. as they send them to each other. That's great. It, it's a great yeah. tool. I know. I know a lot of people who use it, and I have certainly used it as well. Yeah, I've I've gotten quite a few uh, cups of coffee from people for it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, and and you, not even a software engineer. Yeah. Well, again, it was really more the other way around. It was I know that if I sat in front of all these people's computers, I could run the information. So it was really more like, hi, I know I just need to figure out how to tell your computer mm -hmm. to just run these tasks. And so that's that's what it was. It was, um, you know, it's it's a little bit of knowledge goes a long way in this case. That's fantastic. So how how do people get access to that software? Um, over on my website, you can you can find a link to it directly. Okay, and that's just, uh, that's with, just stephenjcohen.com. Right? Yeah, stephenjcohen.com. If you go into the menus, there's a software area, and you'll see Second Opinion there, along with a couple of other pieces of software that I've written for people. For, for the industry, another thing that people like to use is the Audible Sample Finder. Um, and that was because quite a few people on Facebook would say, oh, my God, I forgot to save an MP3 or I forgot or, I, or I'd like to get the cover art or whatever for this particular title and, and I need it now. Um, and so that happened quite a number of times. And so I thought, well, what I can do is I can write something that scrapes a particular audiobook page for you and gives you here's the link to the mp3 here's the cover art here is the the bounty url hmm. you know it's like all the different things that you could derive from the page i just ran through it and did that and i and um, paul stokes who runs the audiobook reviewer system mm -hmm. uses um the sample finder daily for exactly that reason, he, you know, that's part of their workflow over there to yeah. find things. That's that's great. I was unaware of that one. I'll definitely um, check that one out. Well, especially since I mean, you're you're going to APAC, right? Yep, I'll be there. So, you know, um, one thing that that happened related to this is somebody wanted to. They no longer had the the project file on their computer, and they wanted to use one of their books for that sample for speed dating. Oh right, uh huh. 
And so it was, oh, my God, how do I get this in time? The speed dating window closes next, you know, Gotta tomorrow. Have everything Whatever. uploaded, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, just by using that, you were then able to pull it from the site. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, I will definitely look that one up. Yeah. And that should do it for tonight. Stephen and I actually spoke for quite a while longer about Second Opinion, but I didn't include that part of the conversation here because we delved into the geekier side of software development. And I know that's only interesting to a very small subset of our audiobook speakeasy family here. If you're interested in more about the guts of Second Opinion, hit Stephen up. I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about it. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Thank you.